It's my pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Reverend David Lee to um, our pulpit this morning. David um, is an ordained teaching elder in our presbytery here in, in West Hudson and, and has also been a regular attender uh, of our church here. So he's, he's part of our family and we're glad that he's with us this morning to open God's word to us and, and also uh, lead us uh, as we celebrate um, the sacrament together. David. Good morning, Redeemer family. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be reading from verses 10 to 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. Hear now God's holy word. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your invitation to come this morning to sit under the preaching of your word, to receive nourishment for our souls. But Lord, in order for us to be nourished, we need your spirit to do his work of helping us understand what has been written down for our benefit, for our growth, but ultimately for your glory. And so, Lord, as we open your word, may we much more open our hearts. Lord, speak, for your children are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Randy, a Christian man, made his living as a painter. One day, the church asked Randy to restore its biggest building on his property. Randy bought the paint, but trying to cut back on costs, he thinned the paint with water. Randy was painting away, the job nearly completed when suddenly there was a clap of thunder. The sky opened and the rain poured down. It washed the thinned paint off the church. Randy fell on his face and concluded that this was a judgment from the Lord Almighty. Randy raised his voice to the heavens, crying out, Oh God, forgive me, what should I do? And from above, 
a mighty voice roared, repaint, repaint, and thin no more. How many of us are like Randy? We're, we're Christians, and yet there are times in our lives when we try to cut corners in our faith. Or let me put it this way. As we look back this past week, how many of us can say that everything I did as a husband, as a wife, as a father, mother, as a student, everything I did, I did it with God in mind? And I bring that up because what we're going to see in today's text is a man who forgets about God. He gets ahead of God. Abram fails to remember God, and as a result, he gets himself entangled in a big mess. But we're also going to see that God does not fail to remember Abram and restores him to his faith. And so here's the gospel truth, the one-sentence summary for us this morning. When we fail to remember God, he does not fail to remember us and is faithful to restore us to our faith. When we fail to remember God, he does not fail to remember us and is faithful to restore us to our faith. Let's meditate on God's word under three headings. The famine, the forgotten God, and the faithful God. The famine, the forgotten God, and the faithful God. Let's take a look at the famine. I'm going to briefly sum up the portion of today's chapter that we didn't read. God called Abram out of Ur, out of Haran, to settle in Canaan. And so Abram, in faith, responds to this call and, and migrates. He leaves his home and sets out for Canaan. And we have to keep in mind that this isn't an uninhabited land. He is in the heart of pagan country. And as he's getting acclimated and adjusted, we read that he goes around setting up altars and calls upon the name of the Lord. What a great witness. In the heart of pagan country, he is a faithful witness. The Lord calls, Abram responds. The Lord promises, Abram believes. The Lord appears and Abram worships. But then we get to verse 10. And we read, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there, to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Famine in the land of promise. Now, wait a minute. Was it not God who called Abram? Was it not God who had given this land to Abram? In a sense, Abram has made it. He's arrived. And so what we'd expect next is flourishing, not famine. We expect a, a life-enhancing situation, not a life-endangering situation. But that's not what we read in today's text. This famine would have made sense if Abram had been disobedient. But Abram, up to this point, has been obedient. He is walking in God's ways. And to this man, God sends a famine. A couple of weeks ago, my family encountered a situation where we had to leave our home in Maplewood for a couple of weeks. We had to relocate. Long story short, we had to migrate down to Egypt. And by Egypt, I mean my in-laws. <laughs> and just so there isn't any misunderstanding, I love my in-laws. I enjoy staying at my in-laws. And my in-laws are, are very Egypt-like in the sense that they always have an abundance of food. As a matter of fact, every time we share a meal, we feast like royalty. We feast like kings. I'm talking about lobster, sushi, steak for breakfast. <laughs> now, before I feast, I have a ritual. I'm not talking about prayer. I'll always snap a picture of the plate of food that's in front of me. 
And one of my friends, a close friend of mine I'll always snap to is, is a friend named James. And his response is always the same. Bro, truly the Lord has shown favor. <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder, what if one day I'm at my in-laws and I snap a picture of vegetables? Would he respond the same way? Of course not. He'd probably say, did you sin? Is, every, is everything okay? Uh, we could all relate to this, can't we? Wouldn't you agree that we often correlate blessings from God, but not famines or sufferings? We tend to think it's in those times that God is not with us. It's in those times when we question, did I do something wrong? We start questioning God's presence. Lord, do you see what's going on in my life? Where are you? But today's text forces us to think about trials in a different way. Because you see, the cause of this famine was not Abram's sin, nor was it God removing his presence. This famine happened before Abram went down to Egypt. This famine didn't happen because he left the promised land, no. The famine happened and then he went down to Egypt. But before the famine, Abram had been moving from altar to altar, worshiping the Lord. Abram, up to this point, has been showing tremendous courage and commitment to faith. And so this famine can't be because of Abram's disobedience. This wasn't punishment. This can't be because God was mad or disappointed with Abram. And if this is true, then this text shows us that Christians, even the best Christians, aren't exempt from trials and famines. If anything, this text serves to show that Christians should expect famines and trials and sufferings. But what purpose does it serve? I want you to imagine you have a Saturday to spend with your kids. You take your son to the park, you ride your bikes, you play catch quality father's son time. And afterwards, you take him to McDonald's, grab lunch, you get him a happy meal. And on your way home, you look in the rearview mirror and he's looking back at you and he says, Dad, yes, son, I think you're the best dad in the whole world. It just melts your heart. So upon hearing that, instead of going home, you take a detour to Chuck E. Cheese where you spend a couple more hours just loving him, just spoiling him. Now, as you head home, you, you pull out a sheet of paper from your back pocket and, and you hand it to him. And he opens it and he's confused because on the sheet of paper is a list with the following. No screen time during the week. No computer unless it's for school. No staying up past nine. You will make your bed every day. You will take out the trash. You'll mow the lawn. Dad, I'm confused. Did I do something wrong? And so you respond, you may not understand this now, but one day you'll get what I'm doing. I'm teaching you responsibilities. I'm disciplining you. I'm teaching you not to be lazy. What is this father doing? He's raising his son. He's teaching his son life lessons. He's preparing him for the real world. The boy will not understand everything, but it's ultimately for his good. But suddenly this boy, my boy, is filled with anger bitterness and, and resentment. And he has completely forgotten about the wonderful day he had with his father. Now in the same way, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this to be true. How rich and full was it when we first accepted Christ? But after some time, we come into this spiritual winter. We find ourselves in the desert. There's a famine, a famine of peace, a famine of purpose, a famine of joy. And these famines will either do one of, of, of two things. We, like the little boy, will end up angry, 
frustrated, disappointed, and extremely bitter because we often think that these inconveniences, sufferings are incompatible with God's love or it will sober us up and test our foundation. Do I trust God even when I don't understand my circumstances? Redeemer, maybe it's been a while since you faced a trial. Praise God for that, but also praise God when the famines come. For this is the very means God uses to mold us into the image of Christ. Someone has put it this way. The Christian life is often not a fortress, but a furnace. Not a vacation, but a vocation. Not a rest, but a wrestling. Can you identify with that? You see, this famine was meant for Abram to lean not on his own understandings. This famine wasn't primarily meant to drive Abram down to Egypt, but to drive him to his knees. This famine wasn't primarily so Abram can focus not on the feeding of his stomach, but the feeding of his soul. This famine was not meant for death, but for dependence. Not for tragedy, but for trusting. If you're a believer, you have to own up to this. In this world, you will have tribulations. This is a message for the believer. There will be times when you're following him, you're, you're wrestling for his blessing, and you end up with a famine. But do realize that God gives us this famine into our hearts to drive us back again and again in total childlike dependency on him. He's making us learn to lean on him, to be dependent on him. Pastor John Piper writes, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. He goes on to say, his aim is that we grow deeper and stronger in our confidence that he himself will be all we need. Now, if this is true, our times of famine, they don't come by chance. That's what God repeatedly does with Abraham. This is what he does with his elect. And so, Redeemer, I want to ask you, do the famines of your life drive you to the Lord? Unfortunately, this famine did not drive Abram to the Lord. And let's look at our second point, the forgotten God. When we think of Abram or Abraham, we tend to highlight his faith, how he left or how he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. We admire him. We respect him. But here we come across a story of how he almost messed things up. Our text says in verse 10, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there, to sojourn there. He left the promised land. He left Bethel. Why? He needed to find a way to feed his family, to feed his livestock. He needed a way to survive this famine. So he did the most logical thing. He did the most sensible thing. And we see that this move was only the beginning of his problem. Because we see in the very next verse the heart of this problem. We read, starting in verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife, then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Now it's obvious what's taking place, isn't it? Abram knows that his wife is beautiful. He's about to enter into a pagan nation. They don't fear God. They don't know God. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And Abram isn't dumb. 
They're going to take notice of his wife, take her, and kill him. Unless we give them a reason not to kill me. If you tell them that I am your brother, then perhaps they will treat me with favor. Sarah, you will be my get-out-of-jail-free card. But there's a problem with Abram's plan. Because in verses 14 and 15, this is what we read. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. The Egyptians look at Sarah. They like what they see. The princes of Egypt praise her. They rave about her, and they take her straight into Pharaoh's palace. And just like that, Abram's plan becomes undone. He wanted to stall. He wanted to buy time. He suddenly tangled up in his own plan, and they take her to Abram's dismay. They took his wife. He must be feeling sick to his stomach. But wait, at least they didn't kill him. As a matter of fact, we read in verse 16, he treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Abram becomes rich. He's filthy rich. Now, when we read verse 16, it doesn't really make sense to us. There is no wow factor, big deal, he acquired some animals. No, 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 no. He acquired so much more. He now has servants, male and female servants, at his beckoning call. But he also had female donkeys and camels, which one commentator points out were the transportation of choice. The female donkeys were equivalent to today's Teslas. Pharaoh was giving Abram Teslas, not just one, but several. Camels, the camels were your Rolls Royce. Essentially, Abram traded in his wife for some really nice cars. And hopefully there are no husbands in here thinking, wow, Abram got the deal of his life. No, this is a tragedy. He went from famine to fortune, but at what cost? It cost him his wife. In essence, he was saying, you have my permission to prostitute yourself in order to save my life. Your life for mine. Your safety for my safety. Your purity for my protection. And then I'll take you back and we'll go back to Canaan and everything will be well. Abram should have protected his wife, but he uses her. We're talking about Abraham. He's celebrated as the father of many nations. You know, in Sunday school, I had a song about Abraham. I don't know if you guys remember this song. It goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. That song could easily have been faithless Abraham had many slaves, and many slaves had faithless Abraham, all because he prostituted his wife. Right arm, left arm. Church, this is a very sad picture. Abram is in a horrible place. And from a human perspective, this man that God has chosen nearly shipwrecks his calling. But I don't think it's because Abram lacked faith. This isn't a matter of trust. Abram did trust God. He left his home and his kindred. This has nothing to do with denying God or abandoning God. He doesn't call it quits. He doesn't say, God, I tried following you but it was a mistake. He doesn't renounce his faith, no. But herein lies the problem. It all started with the famine. And this famine, understandably, had created the fear of starvation. And Abram then instinctively moves down to Egypt, not in rebellion, not in defiance, not in a lack of faith, 
but he moves this make he moves down to Egypt and there is no mention of God it almost seems as though the author is telling us that Abram didn't seek the Lord's will Abram moved practically but not spiritually not that these two things are always mutually exclusive Abram reacted instinctively not prayerfully he did not deny God he simply forgot him he forgot who God was and how great God is he he marginalized God he put God on the sidelines he doesn't ask direction from the Lord and his problem is really our problem isn't it don't we often do this how many of us can say that God is at the center of all the decisions that we make don't we move to Egypt because of finances don't we move to Egypt because it's better for our children don't we move to Egypt to secure ourselves a better future but here's a question I really want to ask how many of us with the intentions of sojourning in Egypt actually end up staying in Egypt how many of us have declared Egypt our permanent residence when was the last time we went to God and asked him Lord where do you want me to be Lord where, where do you want me to go where do you want me to serve for my rising seniors Lord where do you want me to go to school where can I shine your light Lord where do you want me to be a blessing if we're honest with ourselves our decisions are navigated and guided by practical natural logical steps again not because we don't trust God not because we don't worship God not because we're trying to disobey God but it's often simply because we forget God God is often a footnote an asterisk in our story now I'm not saying don't take care of your finances or try to secure yourself a better future these are good things I'm sure when you make these moves there are with good intentions but look at what happened to Abram he was looking for a way to provide for his family good intentions that resulted in him having everything but his wife Abram the man in the land of promise became the man in the land of compromise and the whole thing turns into a tragic nightmare what grief must have come into his heart here's Abram now in the company of servants sheep donkeys camels he looks around and the evidence is everything that all he has is because of his wife Sarai just as he wished but while he had everything there must have been an emptiness in Abram's heart wondering if he'll ever see his wife again wondering if she'll ever be his wife again how in the world does Abram get disentangled this leads us to our third point God's faithfulness there is no way that Abram could have gotten out of this mess on his own what was he going to do was he now going to tell Pharaoh the truth Pharaoh um, you know how I said earlier that Sarah is my sister well technically I wasn't lying she's my half-sister but she's also my wife he couldn't do that not at this point immediate death sentence but fortunately for Abram and really for us the story doesn't end in verse 16. we read in verse 17 but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai but the Lord that phrase but the Lord is the key to understanding this sermon because this is really what it's all about it's who it's all about this is the climax the Lord intervenes the Lord comes into the picture Abram had forgotten the Lord but the Lord forgot him not 
Abram had overlooked his God, but the Lord did not overlook his servant. We have here a picture of God being mighty to save. But you see, it's so much more than God rescuing Abram. This is not just the redemption of Abram. No, this is God preserving his covenant for all his elect, for you and me in this room. It's about your preservation, my preservation. Because it's not despite Abram, but it's through Abram that God's long historical redemptive promised salvation will come to pass. So how does God intervene? Again, we read, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Pharaoh is afflicted to the point where he knows something's not right, something's up. We're not sure how he finds out, but regardless, he finds out the truth. And we read in the following verse, so Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. This is an embarrassment. Abram, just a few verses ago, was going around setting up altars and calling upon the name of the Lord. But here in Egypt, not once did he call upon the name of the Lord. And it's a pagan who calls him out. It's a pagan who rebukes him. He's reprimanded by an unbeliever. It's embarrassing. And so he sheepishly leaves Egypt with his tail between his legs. He doesn't utter one word. This whole trip is a colossal failure from Abram's side, and yet, from God's side, it's a testimony to his faithfulness. Notice how Pharaoh doesn't ask Abram to return to gifts. Rather, he commands his men to escort Abram and his wife with all of the possessions. Just when things looked hopeless for Abram, God intervenes and takes care of everything. This story ends on a good note, but it's not entirely resolved. Because you see, we're left with this question. How? Why was God faithful to Abram when Abram had forgotten God? Didn't Abram deserve to be afflicted? How can God be faithful to us when we are unfaithful? Don't we deserve to be plagued? Don't we deserve to be afflicted? The answer is yes. We absolutely and fully deserve it. But in a strange turn of events, he plagues Pharaoh. And just to be clear, Pharaoh too deserves to be plagued from God. It's not like Pharaoh was innocent and he didn't deserve judgment. It's not like God placed Abram's sins on Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh was not a substitute for Abram. Both Pharaoh and Abram deserve to be plagued. And so there's still this tension. How does God resolve this conflict? Here's how. God one day will send another prophet. And this prophet doesn't so sojourn down to Egypt but he comes from heaven down to earth. And he comes because he sees his bride enslaved, entangled in the depths of her sins. He sees her, his bride in bondage, in captivity. And though God would have been perfectly just to leave us in captivity, because of his great love for us, he doesn't leave us where we are. No, he sets a plan in motion to rescue us. And the beauty of this plan wasn't that he sends an army of angels to rescue his bride. No, he sends his son. And as Abram was given an offer, so too Christ was given an offer. You could have the glory. You could have all the riches without going to the cross. But Christ knew 
the only way he could ransom his bride was through the cross. And the only reason God bypassed Abram, the only reason God bypasses us is because he does not bypass his son. God the Father plagued his son for the curse and punishment of your sin so that you could be free. Christ took the plague. Jesus traded places with us. My life for yours. My safety for yours. He bore it all. And because of Christ's work, we are not only set free from sin, but we share in all of Christ's inheritance. Everything that Christ has earned is ours. What amazing love. What incomprehensible love. Have you tasted that love? Have you forgotten it? Have you been in Egypt way too long? Have you lost touch with God? Christ has earned the right through his suffering to bring you back. Will you trust his faithfulness? Will you treasure his faithfulness? May God's grace only draw you into, into a deeper devotion to our faithful Father. And when the famines of your life come, remember, but the Lord, he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are a faithful God, a loving God, a forgiving God. And remind us that it cost you, your perfect son. Jesus, thank you for trading places with us. Thank you for your work. Thank you for loving us to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remind us now the riches that we have as we place our faith in you. And Lord, when the famines do come, help us remember that you are not removing your presence, but you are calling us to depend and lean more and wholly on you. May we do that as your people to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.